Hello and welcome to Common Rider AA, a podcast where what the fuck is a goblin coordinate? I'm, I'm afraid I don't know. However, what the fuck is it, Anna? I don't know, but I, I do have some good news, though. I have good news for you and for the listeners. We have a special guest today on the podcast, a, a returning guest that we thought was lost. It's the knife. I found the knife. Hi, Knife Coon. It's been a minute. I'm now ready to stab people. Did Knife Coon say, hear that I said hi? N- Knife Coon says yes. Yes, okay. Knife Coon heard. Cool. Uh, yeah, today we watched and are recapping episodes 29 and 30 of Common Rider Kiva. When the Saints Go Marching In, I Am King, and Curtain Rising, Kiva's Identity. Yeah, these are, I think this is our first three-parter. I believe so. Yeah, I noticed that there were a lot of plot threads hanging at, at the end of the second episode. That uh, At the end of episode 30, that is. Yeah, like no, nothing was resolved. It ended on a cliffhanger. It, I, I like it. I, I, I like I, I like it. Uh, but yeah, if you're re- good to go, we'll go ahead and jump right in. I'm so ready to jump right in. I Sorry, these episodes are just very good. I love them. They're good, yeah. I could tell immediately that they were directed by Ishida, and all his directorial hallmarks are in there, and I just, I missed him so much. Oh, right. Uh, I have to say words before we start. Uh, Curtain Raising, Kiva's Identity, episode 30, aired August 31st, 2008. Not 29. What? Not episode 29. Oh, fuck biscuits. Sorry. <laughs> when the when the saints go marching in, I am king. Episode twenty nine, air date August twenty fourth, two thousand eight. Written by Toshiki Inoue and directed by uh, Hidenori Ishida. Oh, Ishida Sama, you grace us with your presence once more. These episodes are so good. They're pretty good. Like realizing what the rest of this three parter is. Like I think this three parter, like if you know, we count that as you know the two parters that we always have might be in mm-hmm. my top three i'd say this one uh one that's coming up in a bit and the uh one with uh the frog thing guy so yeah we're as you can tell we're pretty excited let's get into it so episode 29 starts with megami out jogging she runs into wataru who is continuing his own training so he can protect mio well, well t- technically, it starts with Kivat asking, Hey, did you guys see us fuck up that demon castle? You should, because it was really <laughs> awesome. Anyway, back to the show. Yeah. Wataru and Megami sit down for a minute, and Wataru gets a call from Mio. Megami snatches his phone and arranges a date between Wataru and Mio. This is so much sibling energy. Like, Wataru and Mio are l- literally just brother and sister. Megami. That's what I said. You said Mio. Did I say Mio? You Listen, did. Everyone knows on this podcast that I mess up names all the time. All right. Megami and Wataru are complete brother and sister. Yep. Which is ironic considering Megami's bit of an asshole brother shows up this episode. Uh-huh. Well, we'll get to him. Uh, in Cafe Maldemore, Wataru is sitting with Mio... Mio shyly apologizes for troubling Wataru up to this point. And apologizes for not being there when he was inexplicably sent to high school. <laughs> yeah, she was sorry for everything in her words. I'm, I'm sorry you had to experience the fact that the prison had the ruins five feet to the left. 
continue. Uh, but Wataru clearly doesn't mind. Mio continues by saying that she's decided that if she wants to see Wataru, then she will. But suddenly, a wild Shizuka attacks. With forced cheer, Shizuka congratulates Wataru and Mio on their relationship being reignited. She then walks to the bar and angrily gnaws on a straw. Also, this is going to sound a little odd, but I literally couldn't stop noticing that Shizuka's uh, like eyeliner was on fucking point. Or not eyeliner, eyeshadow. Yeah, she had different makeup for when she went into her devil persona, didn't she? Yeah, but even in regular form, like, she just had some ball and eye eyeshadow. Later, Wataru was in the bath, still euphoric from his date with Mio. In the next room over, his phone rings with a call from Mio herself. Shiska picks it up, and having taken on an overly cheerful demonic persona... Oh! Uh, she is rocking the noblewoman's laugh all throughout this episode. <laughs> and the next, for that matter. It's so fucking good. It's amazing. <laughs> Shizuka justifies her existence in these two episodes. It, it's so good. She like, the lighting changes and becomes all dark red and ominous. And she gets like little fake devil horns and a little devil tail that in one shot you could see she's holding in a, one of her hands. I think in all the shots she's physically holding it in her hands. And it's just so tough. And she she speaks with like a, a a demonic eerie echo, and there's like weird tribal chanting in the background. We have in the same set of episodes, Devil Shizuka, and that sad as fuck shit with Kengo. <laughs> it's so good. I love it. <sighs> this is why I always forgive Inoue. Week after week, you know, we'll have you know. Stinkers, and it'll be like, oh, I can't forgive you anymore, Inoue. But then these episodes come out like, oh, Inoue, I love you, man. <laughs> I think this is Ishida's work. I don't... Yeah, they're, they're, they're the dynamic duo. Yeah, Ishida knows how to how to play off all the, the ridiculous writing and in a way that doesn't take itself too seriously. But yeah, Shizuka tells Mio that she can take a message. Mio asks Shizuka to pass along an invitation to Wataru to go see a movie, and Shizuka says that she'll let him know. Spoiler, she doesn't. They end the call, and Mio gets approached by Bishop. Bishop inquires as to what Mio is trying to do. As Mio tries brushing him off, Bishop reminds her that as queen, she'll eventually have to wed the checkmate force king. Who is, who is definitely... Uh, the baby tiger we saw last set of episodes. Yeah, Mio just hurriedly walks off. In a scam artist's fortune teller's hut, a man dressed like a cowboy comes walking in and asks the fortune teller if he can really see the future. The fortune teller also, when he sees someone walk in, he puts on fake-ass eyebrows and a fake-ass beard. Yep. Also, he maybe he does have actual psychic powers. <laughs> I don't know, I think you would have seen this guy coming then. I mean, it's a classic thing, you can predict everyone's future but your own. <laughs> that, that guy in the restaurant and Red Man had actual powers, so... I don't know, that's weird. Okay, listen, the, the guy in the restaurant, he had actual powers, okay? And Red Man, when the buildings disappear, that's after we switch away from the in-universe camera. So we're seeing it from quote-unquote reality. And then later, those buildings are still missing on panning shots. Red Man disappeared two buildings. Yeah. 
That's true. It would have. I'll get to it when for our episode ratings for episode thirty. But I think there's a better way to have written that. I, I think you mean a ten out of ten because you have Red Man, apparently <laughs> the true magical might of our generation. <laughs> Uh, if the BSO had gotten a hand on him before he was killed by the Warthog Fangire, also known as Propeller Kingdom's Collapse, they would have been able to beat the Fangire by supporting the greatest magician of all time. Nah, Redman would never have worked with an organization that has blue in their name. <laughs> oh yeah, he, 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 would, he would have ended up with the Worldwide Wing Organization. The fortune teller says that, yeah, he can't see the future, and the cowboy, who turns out to be a fangire, kills him. Yeah, uh, by the way, the fangire's actor is Akira uh, Kubodera. Oh, no, now I'm sad. Sorry, I was just uh, looking up, you know, who he played. Um, he played, a, you know, a few characters of the uh, week here and there, and he committed suicide in last year, November 13th. Now I'm sad. In a fancy restaurant, Shima, Keisuke, and Megami are having a meeting with Mitsuhide Aso, Megami's younger brother, whose existence we had no indication of prior to this. Uh, also, uh, Megami's brother is played by Masai Nakayama. Uh, he played the brass brand club leader in episodes 23 and 38 of Kamen Rider Hibiki. And he also plays the main character... In uh, Garo Makai no Hana, the son of the original Garo, uh, Garo and also uh, Raiko in uh, Garo Crimson Moon, which is the second Garo anime. And he plays the main character in that. Uh, Mitsuhide, being apparently quite wealthy, is making a sizable donation to the BSO. Well, he, he became quite wealthy for 10 seconds, then he gave all of his money away. To his credit, it's to a good cause. The BSO is like the only line of defense between the Japanese populace and fangires. Okay, so I did some math. I did some hardcore math. So I was trying to figure out the timeline of the births of these people. And and I, I decided to go a little bit based off of the actor birthdays. Uh, Mase, uh, Megami's brother's uh, birthday, is... Uh, <clears throat> December 15th, 1998, and, Meg and Megami's actress's birthday is January 3rd, 1987. So they're about like two years apart in birthdays. So that unfortunately, one of my, th one of my theories requires them to be twins, but it doesn't invalidate the theory. It just makes it a little bit more of a stretch. Uh, I'll, I'll just say it now. I, I believe that Megami is Jiro's daughter. Hmm. That's interesting. I Guess we'll get further into that. Mitsuhide alludes to an agreement the Aso family made with the BSO in which Megami would serve as one of their operatives for three years, after which she'd return to her family. Well, 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 it, well it, wasn't, it, wasn't a, uh, it wasn't a deal made with the BSO. Um, it was a deal that Mitsuhide made with Megami. Basically saying, all right, I'll let you go and fight monsters for three years and I'll keep the business running. But you need, but in three years, you need to come back home. Like, it was a thing between the two of them, not with the BSO. Oh, I didn't get that. I didn't. Yeah, okay. Yeah, that's why Megami was trying to uh, shush him. I see. All right. 
Megami takes Mitsuhide to the side and argues with him, saying that it's too soon to leave the BSO as she hasn't carried out Yuri's will yet. Mitsuhide counters by saying that it was never Yuri's wish that Megami join the BSO, but for Megami to live a normal, happy life. Running a dry grocers is apparently what Yuri did after the end of Kiva. Megami angrily storms out of the restaurant. We cut to 1986, where Yuri and Otoya, well, mainly Yuri, are cleaning the Kurenai house. Uh, uh, Otoya is doing the opposite of cleaning, which is opening a bag of chips, opening it completely, then being like, eh, fuck this, and then tearing the bag in half and being shocked when chips fly everywhere. <laughs> it's, it's literally the funniest thing. Because he opens up the bag, and you see it open, there's a hole in it. And then he looks at it, does a face, and splits it open. <laughs> like he's goddamn tearing apart, I don't know, an acorn or something. You're tearing me apart, Atoya. I, I, am, I am positive that, that was Kohei Takeda ad-libbing, because that, 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 that has to have been ad-libbed by him. Eh. Uh, it wouldn't surprise me. Otoya seems content to laze around while Yuri cleans. This prompts a little couple spat between the two of them. Yuri whacks Otoya with a duster before suddenly pausing and asking Otoya if it's okay for her to enjoy such mundane concerns while the Fengires and Rook are still at large. Yeah, that, it's that's a really good like plot point I like. The idea of am i allowed to be happy like if i if i have this if i have this duty to the world at large am i allowed to have this happiness even while other people are suffering and that's a really cool thing i like that they sort of get into a little bit yeah i agree elsewhere rook kills a dude in his usual manner and decides his next time trial will be to take someone's sunglasses this 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 time trial is very loose yeah. It, it ends with him just beating them up and then being like, time trial complete. It's like, dog, they still breathing. Yeah, and is it like a multi-stage time trial with optional objectives, like to get more than one pair of sunglasses? It seems to go on for a couple days as opposed to the usual 20 or 30 minutes. I think this episode took course, at least in 88, over the course of a single day. Yuri was in the hospital for a single day. Okay. You think she wouldn't, like, grab the doctor's collar, pull him in, and say, Get me out of this bitch hole. <laughs> Pump me full of steroids. No, Yuri doesn't need steroids. She's what steroids are made from. <laughs> uh, when Yuri does push-ups, she pushes the earth down. <laughs> Jiro shows up and engages Rook in a fight to avenge the wolfen, but he gets his ass beat again. Yeah, and gets a sick-ass scar that I wish stayed on him. Yeah, it looks cool. Like, imagine if he had this scar in 2008, and we were like, when does he get his scar? And then he gets a scar here, and he just has this red line across his face. Yeah, that would have been dope. Rook takes Jiro's sunglasses and walks off, not even considering Jiro a threat, and having fulfilled his time trial. Soon after... Jiro walks up to Ricky and Ramon, who have taken up a new part-time job of, as, I guess, doing that sort of 
street lottery thing. They survive. That's that's what that's what that's what you need to know. Ricky and Ramon always survive. Otoya is also there. Knowing that he can never defeat Rook on his own, Jiro asks the three of them to help him defeat Rook. Otoya questions how Ricky and Ramon would be able to contribute. Well, what 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 he says, at least in the subs I had, was, "What are Fatty and Shorty gonna do against Rook?" Which is which is like so mean. It's like especially to Ricky, because the man's not fat; he's buff. Man can bench press three of the Otoya. <laughs> uh. Ricky and Ramon then quickly spook Otoya by revealing themselves to also be monsters. Do you think at this point, Otoya... Uh, when do you think they tell Otoya that, oh, no, we're not actually Fangires, we're, you know, the last of our race? Do you think they ever tell Otoya, like, yeah, no, there are more creatures than Fangires out there, and most of them were killed? I think Otoya would have figured out at least that they're not Fangires. Jiro did tell tell Otoya that he's a wolfin. And I think it's obvious just from how Ricky and Ramon's monster forms are that they're not Fangires either. Yeah, I, I guess you're right. I'm, 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 just, I'm just curious if I wonder if like at one point Jiro just sort of uh, hung out with Otoya in his house. It's a late night study sesh between bros, <laughs> teaching him about the history of the different demon races. And then, you know, it's late and they look into each other's eyes and they just lean forward and starting fighting and knocking each other the fuck out with their fists. <laughs> Being a little freaked out by the sudden reveal, Otoya tries walking off and leaving the monster affair to the monsters. Jiro then says that defeating Rook would be for Yuri's sake as well, implying that taking out the object of her revenge will, will save her from her self-destructive crusade. Otoya agrees to help under the condition that Yuri cannot know about this. I have mixed feelings about this. I like it because they recognize that Yuri is in a position where she will get in over her head. She will get herself killed. And they want to protect the woman they love. But at the same time, it's also, a, it's also you know, removing her agency. And if she had more agency throughout the show, like if she had more chance, if she had, you know, was able to be Ixa more than just in the movie, or if, uh, like... She didn't have that thing where she just froze up in fear out of nowhere, contradicting the rest of the series. Yeah. Like, it wouldn't matter, but because it's a continued thing, even if it, though it makes sense in the narrative, it's just something that sticks out to me that's annoying. We return to 2008, where Wataru is visiting Kengo in the hospital. Kengo struggles to play the guitar on account of an injury he got from fighting the crap Bangire. And was Kengo actually injured? Because I don't remember it being really made clear whether or not he got an injury that was permanent. I I can't remember either. I, I either way, this is probably the worst day of Kengo's life. Yeah. In the mom and pop restaurant where Megami usually hangs out, Megami gets approached by Mitsuhide. Tells her you got to make sure to remember the triangle. You got to remember the triangle. Miso, rice, and fish. The triangle, baby. <laughs> Does Megami not have... She ha, She has the rice. She was eating the rice. She has the fish. Did she, did she not have miso? I, I know many things about, about Megami Aso. And one of the things I know is she would never eat less of a meal than she possibly could. Mitsuhide tells her that he made the donation to the BSO in exchange for Megami being released from their service and returned to the Aso family. 
Megami later asks Shima about this arrangement, and while he accepts the donation, he lets Megami know that he won't force her to quit. Yeah, Sh- Shima's honestly really good here. He's, he's like, yeah, no, I accepted the donation, but then I kept things purposefully vague. So not only did I get all of your brother's money, but you don't have to quit. <laughs> Complete baller move from Shima. Megami asks about Rook, and Shima lets her know that it's better to give up on fighting a Fengire of his caliber. In another location, still in 2008, Rook is going about trying to think up another time trial to, to play. He laments that he's already done so many when a bruise suddenly appears on his arm, signaling that he apparently has Fengire cancer. Just a regular bruise, like... It's a thing that really should have been here for a long time. It'll it'll be explained next episode, but it's just bad foreshadowing. Rook overhears a woman reading a picture book to her daughter about a hero whose story ended with him going to heaven. Sebastian. After having done so much good in the world. Rook, having the mind of a child, decides that he too can get to heaven by doing good deeds like the hero in the book. And I'm like, Rook, you've killed hundreds of people for shits and giggles over the course of what might have been centuries. A few months worth of good deeds isn't going to clear a karmic debt like that. Also, you are way underselling the idea of hundreds. I I think you might mean millions, possibly. <laughs> that's 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 even discounting the demon races he exterminated. Yeah. Do you think that uh, Rook was involved in flooding the Legendorum? It depends on how long ago that was. I mean, it was with the first Kiva and the first uh, Fangire King, so it had to be prettier. I, I just want, like, you know that uh, book they released for Legend of Zelda, like, the Hyrule Historia? Basically, it was a it was a guide of the history of Hyrule. I, I want one of those for the Fangires and the rest of the demon races. Like, I won't get it, but I wish I could. Nearby, Mio is waiting for Wataru to meet her for their movie date. She sees Wataru come walking up with Shizuka, who sends him off to fetch a drink. Mio runs up and asks what's going on, and in an attempt to sabotage their relationship, Shizuka feeds Mio a lie about Wataru actually being her fiancé as we catch a glimpse of her little devil persona. I swear to God, she's just fucking best these episodes. Elsewhere, a street magician is performing some tricks when the cowboy Fangire comes and asks him if his apparent ability to generate matter from nothing is real or not. Okay, do, do you think do you think the street magician is a red man or a fortune teller? Do you think he's real or fake? Mm, he's a he's a illusionist. He's a fortune teller. All right. Okay. So, so this wasn't an actual man with spontaneous creation. Do, no. Do you think maybe? Do you think? Do you think maybe the cat, Mr. Cowboy, the Warthog Fangire, whose name apparently is Abaru, the per, the Propeller Kingdom's collapse? Do you think he might be a little stupid? Do you think maybe he's just a tiny bit stupid? I think there was a better way to write that. He's just so dumb. He's like. All right, I heard the king was raised among humans as one of them, and the king apparently has special powers. I'm gonna track down every magician and murder them. And the last on my list is the greatest magician of all, Redman, my arch-rival. <laughs> Maybe the Warthog Fengar was more receptive to the idea of humans having supernatural abilities 
since he himself is a supernatural creature? I think he's just dumb. I don't, maybe. I mean, everyone dunks on him. Like, literally everyone. Bishop's like, oh man, yeah, you're tough, but yeah, you, you, you're not king material. And, and Rook, a man who is so far shown to have no interest in, in following any orders whatsoever, really, is like, oh, Bishop said that uh, he, wanted to he wanted to kill you, okay. I'll take some time off of getting into heaven to kill you. <laughs> I think Rook just wanted to fight a strong opponent to alleviate his boredom. Well, well he explicitly says, ah, Bishop said that there's a thing, Geyer, trying to become the next king. One second in, I knew that wasn't Rook. The warthog slash cowboy kills the magician and concludes that his abilities aren't real. Kiba then jumps in and the fangire assumes his warthog form. By, by the way, those children are all traumatized. Seeing, seeing just a street magician. Well, first of all, seeing a street magician. And then after that, seeing the street magician die. Oh, I thought you said, I thought for a second you said they're all ultrontized, like... Ultron Turk cyberized them or something, but you said all traumatized. <laughs> that magician was in front of like florist or like a grocery, a small grocery store, and the way that the camera panned, it looked like he was just doing magic to nobody, while the people working with the plants outside were just looking at him with pity. <laughs> it's like, oh man, that's Dave. Ever since his wife died. He's done nothing but put on that ridiculous red nose oh. and perform illusions in front of the greengrocer. <laughs> uh, Kiva, as, they, as he fights the warthog, notices how strong he is, and the warthog acknowledges this compliment, I guess, and announces his intent to become the next king of the Checkmate Four. Kiva goes into emperor form and is... Better able to match the Warthog's power then. I think this is great because we have, so far we haven't seen anybody match Emperor form. Like, Watsuru has the upper hand, he lands more hits and his hits seem to do more damage. But this is the first time anyone has landed a solid hit on Emperor and like knocked him back and tanked his hits. I, I think it's really effective. Because, like, when, when I saw this guy do the dual punch with Wataru and, like, both of them, like, lock hands like it's Dragon Ball Z, I was like, holy fuck, this guy's tough. So we're about to have another series of rapid cuts between 1986 and 2008, so I'm going to go through those time periods separately. In 1986, Jiro and Otoya are walking along and discussing how to best take down Rook when Speak of the Devil and he will come. Rook himself comes walking up with the intent to finish off Jiro and I guess take the identical pair of sunglasses he has. <laughs> Jiro has a second pair of sunglasses. I think he, I think very quickly he was like, all right, let's see how many sunglasses I can take from this goddamn wolf in before time runs out. Yeah. Also, th this is the start of peak Otoya and Jiro. Here to the, from here to the end of the show. Ooh. Like, not just these two episodes. So the end of the show, Jiro and Otoya have the best interactions. Because it, se it, it seems fighting to the death in the woods has led to them basically being like, yeah, we're friends now. <laughs> like, they're just chill now. It's like, yeah, 
I know I, ki I kidnapped and almost maybe raped your girlfriend in the middle of the woods after tearing you apart with my literal claws and throwing you into the river, but we're cool now. And Atoy's like, fuck yeah, bro. <laughs> yeah, I, I missed their bantering. This is very welcome news. Unprepared, Otoya and Jiro try running, but Jiro gets knocked out by Rook. Having to take a stand, Otoya henchings into Proto-Iksa and tries to fight Rook. He naturally gets his ass beat. However, Yuri comes in and tries fighting Rook in her boyfriend's stead. I mean, go you, Yuri. You're the best. But also, it's fucking Rook. There's no one in this goddamn millennium that can match Rook right now. In 2008, Megami happens upon a couple kids making a chalk drawing on the street. She tells them that it's dangerous to play there, but they ignore her. She passes by Rook, who mutters a mantra of, I will do good things, to himself. As they pass each other by, a nearby truck's parking brake comes undone, and it starts rolling in the direction of the unsuspecting kids. Before it can harm them, however, Rook goes into Fengar form and catches the truck. Seeing that there's a Fengar right in front of her, and it's Rook of, of all of them, Megami tries spiting him. The episode then ends with parallel shots of Yuri and Megami getting thrown around by Rook. So I'm, I'm pretty sure that they did that fight teleport thing, except without anyone moving in any directions. Like, they cut, they cut to 88, they cut back to, to 08, and then, like, all of a sudden, they go from that alley to a construction site. It's good. I love I love this fucking show. Who's your writer of the week? I'm going to say Jiro and Atoya's uh, banter. Like, I'm going to say their interactions are the writer of the week because I know this is the start of really good things. All right. My writer of the week is Shizuka. Her demon persona was incredibly entertaining to watch and served as further testament to Ishida's ability to direct the funnier episodes of Kiva. For my uh, monster of the week, uh, I think I'm going to pick uh, Mitsuhide Aso, uh, Megami's brother. Like, he, like, obviously Rook is the bigger monster because he kills people and now he's trying to go to heaven. But, like, on, on a more personal note... Like, the idea of Mitsuhide trying to get Megami away from, like, Watsuru and Shima and, unfortunately, Keisuke are her family. Like, she legitimately loves them like her family, and she loves the work she does helping people. And that, and that he's trying to take it away, even if it's with the best intentions, just sort of makes me angry. Hmm, I get that. I mean, it's less that he's the monster of the week and more like his actions are, even though they don't have any malice or hatred behind them. Right. My monster the re of the week is Rook. The bitch boy thinks he can earn some kind of happy hereafter at the last minute, after having ruined and ended hundreds, if not thousands of lives. To the tarot corner! I'm giving the moon to Shizuka. In the tarotguide.com's words, the moon can indicate that you're feeling quote, uncertain or insecure in a relationship. Alternatively, it can indicate deceit in a relationship, and that is pretty much everything about Chizka in this in these episodes, is that she's jealous of Mio and the closeness that she's forming with Wataru. Uh, is that in upright or reverse it? Upright. Huh. Weird. Usually the uprights are, you know, if not outright good, but more... 
tend to be positive attributes or at worst more neutral ones? Mm, not always. The devil upright is usually pretty negative. Well, yeah, but it's the fucking devil, Adam Bear. <laughs> It's like, oh, it's the devil. That means you're that uh, you're gonna find a penny on the street and also run into your first love. <laughs> it's like, no, what the? F it's the fucking devil. Of course, it means bad shit. The tower upright means disasters coming. I forgot about that one. The hanged man means you can't make a decision. Oh, I, I thought the hanged man was partially serenity. No, I think you're thinking temperance. Uh, either way, I th I think that's. That correlates pretty well to how she's acted in these episodes. What's your episode rating? Uh, I'm going to give it an 8 out of 10. It would be a 9, but there there are a few little things that just sort of bug me. Like Warthog being very stupid. Um, like, honestly, basically that. The Warthog being so stupid sort of brings it down a notch. Mine's a 7.6 out of 10. This was a breath of fresh air after the last two episodes. Ishida's directorial style continues to delight me, and I think we're counting down to a final battle with Rook, which gets me excited. Yeah, oh, another reason my points thing went down is because I know about how his, as you described it, uh, Fangai or Cancer happened, and I'm like, uh, sort of bad introducing it suddenly like that. Huh. Uh, but yeah. We're now moving into episode 30 of Kiva, Curtain Rising, Kiva's Identity. Uh, yes, this episode aired August 31st, 2008, written by Toshiki Inoue, and directed by the man, the myth, the legend, Hironori Ishida. So this episode starts with Megami having been soundly beaten by Rook. Rook goes back to human form, says that he must continue to do good deeds, and walks off. Motherfucker. I am going to perform good deeds. Yeah, good deeds. Like, at, at this point, I already fucked up Rook's voice, so I might as well just lean into it. In 1986, Yuri has also been slapped around by Rook. However, Jiro puts himself between her and the Fangire. He taunts Rook with his sunglasses, which have been the objective of the current time trial, and he runs off, drawing Rook's attention away from Yuri. Yeah, I... J Jiro's, Jiro's become a good person. Like, a, 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 a better person. Like, a, after, breaking, after breaking down sobbing in the woods after trying to kidnap a person, I, I think he re-examined his life goals. Uh, we get another cut to 2008, where Kiva and the Warthog Fangai are still fighting. The Warthog declares that he will defeat Kiva and formally inherit the position of Fangai King, before disappearing and leaving Kiva to wonder what he meant by that. Is is Kiva and the like the Checkmate Four's like title of king, are they separate things? Uh I, I think basically it's just like, well, alright, Kiva Kiva's been fucking us up, so if I kill if I kill the current heir for king and then kill Kiva, no one will say I can't take the throne. I, I think it's more of a yeah, like if I take out Kiva, everyone's gonna be like Holy shit, bro, you're awesome. You took out Kiva. No, uh, what I mean is like, is the is the powers of Kiva supposed to be something that the Fengar King has? I already spoiled it in the movie episode, but the K Kiva and uh, Kiva and the Fangires have long been intertwined. So I'll leave it at that. We learn more about it soon. Uh, yeah, he 
The warthog declares he'll defeat Kiva and inherit the position of king before disappearing and leaving Kiva to wonder what he meant by that. After we fend off the OP, we go to Cafe Maldemore where Mitsuhide rushes in to plead with Megumi, who is still recovering from her fight with Rook, to quit the BSO. She is naturally not receptive to her little brother's wishes. Yeah, the BSO is her life. She's not going to just quit. She has to fulfill her mom's legacy. Indeed. In Wataru's workshop, Kivad and Wataru are rehearsing what Wataru should say to ask Mio out on a date. Wataru calls Mio, but she doesn't immediately pick up. Shiska, continuing her efforts to sabotage Wataru and Mio's relationship, tries talking Wataru out of it. Cut to Mio ruminating on what Shiska said about her and Wataru being engaged. Mio just said, just kind of sullenly calls Wataru a jerk for having apparently deceived her. Yeah, I mean, apparently had a fiancé all this time. I mean, first I find out you don't have a high school diploma, then I find out you have a fiancé? <laughs> Not to mention all that weird shit with the moon. I don't know what that was. I'm just having a rough time of it, Wataru. Yeah. In the hospital where Kengo was at, Wataru passes a nurse's station and overhears the nurses talking about Kengo's condition. Apparently, the damage Kengo suffered to his arms is permanent, and he won't be able to play the guitar again. So awful. Like, literally, guitar is this man's life. He says as much, yeah. At Kingo's bedside, Wataru tries to reassure the, the rocker boy that he'll recover in no time. Uh, do, do, you, do you think that, uh, do you think that Wataru is in the, is in the right, or not, not even in the right, but do you think it was right of Wataru to lie to him like that? Hmm, I think Kingo overreacted a bit later. What? I mean, I mean, Kengo did overreact, but I mean, that's just a result of him lashing out because his life is basically over. But like, like obviously Kengo would have reacted bad either way. But do you think for Wataru, it was, it would it have been better to tell the truth or would it have been better to, you know, be like, I'm sure you'll recover? That I, that's really kind of a thing that depends on a person's individual preferences whether they'd like to have the the truth just laid out for them or if they just want to hold on to hope for as long as they can i that's it's really a a, a per person basis kind of thing i don't think watu was right or wrong to to say what he said elsewhere at a cafe a guy is trying to impress his date by telekinetically levitating a piece of silverware he gets his neck lifted by the warthog Fangire, who notices that this guy is not the king. Okay, so this man, is he a red man or is he a fortune teller? I guess he's a fortune teller. Oh, really? I was thinking he was a red man. Because <laughs> I, I think he had actual psychic powers. In the Shima gym, Mitsuhide presents a letter of resignation to Shima on Megumi's quote-unquote behalf. Shima accepts this, much to Megami's protests. Uh, also, some more amazing background work by Keisuke. Because he, he opens... First of all, the resignation letter is written like it's a goddamn like ancient scroll telling the secrets of how to release Rita Repulsa. 
and Kengo is just in the background reading it and just smiling. And then he later says, I hope I hope you have a good time with your family. <laughs> Keisuke is the fucking best. I love this man. I love this piece of trash. <laughs> uh, we time positioned to 86, where Yuri is leaving a hospital room to once again go on the hunt for Rook. Otoya comes in and asks if she's still dead set on this, and she confirms it. Jiro also comes in to tell Otoya that he has Rook's current location. This is the first time, like, besides when she sa- when he saved him, the first time in a non-combat situation that she's seen this man since she, ki- since she was kidnapped by him and tied up Tarzan-style in the middle of the woods. Yeah. And, like, you can see that on her face. Yuriaso's actress, uh, let's see, her name Yu is... Yu Takahashi. Yeah, Yu Takahashi. Like her, 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 like, her face is, like, happy to... At first, it's, like, happy to see Atoya, but, like, also frustrated about Rook. And then Jiro walks in, and her face just goes to... I'm gonna fucking punch that man in the balls. <laughs> it's so good. Yu Takahashi's a goddess. Both Otoya and Jiro leave as Yuri tries going after them, but... Within a matter of seconds, Otoya and Jiro have disguised themselves as a doctor and patient whom Yuri overlooks as she runs out. Do you need any assistance? <laughs> oh, also, also, like, she doesn't run after them. She, uh, he's, there, he's like, I found him. He's at the park. You know, the one park Tokyo has. So, like, they, they were baiting her to an area, so. Oh. Right, I didn't quite get that. Uh. This is a, this is one of those scenes in Kiva that you always remember. Yes, like with the chef hat and the the Fisher guy getting jumped. So it was you who stole my secret sauce. This yep. place looks nice. Do you need assistance, ma'am? <laughs> but like the fact that like at, for, at for, like you know after they pretend they start being like yo me no yo me uh, uh, uh. then a nurse walks by and Toya pretends to have a hunch like oh thank you thank you so much <laughs> I'm gonna have to rewatch this fucking scene it's so good it is it is almost as good as Goblin Coordinates. <laughs> It's so good, yes. I mean, I think maybe this is the goblin coordinate. I think the goblin coordinates lead you to this scene. (laughs) Oh, I finally know. I've achieved enlightenment. (sighs) You have been selected by the goblin coordinates? (laughs) I'm sorry, I'm sorry, no. I am, you are selected in a goblin coordinate. In a public space... Yuri's chasing Ricky, who's dressed like Rook. And I'm starting to think that Yuri is every bit as horned up for killing Rook, like, just as in the same way Keisuke is horned up for collecting buttons. Yeah. Rook! Buttons! In 2008, the Warthog Fengire has killed another crackpot psychic in his pursuit of King. Bishop walks in and asks him what he's doing. The Warthog tells Bishop that he's heard that King has been living among humans and exhibits unusual supernatural abilities. Bishop admonishes the Warthog for his overambitious attitude, but the Warthog brushes him off, saying that strength is everything. So this is pretty interesting. Obviously, the next King has been living among humans, otherwise they wouldn't have introduced the rumor 
and you know he wouldn't have had that and you know Taiga wouldn't have been childhood friends with Atoya and it's just interesting to me like this opens up so many questions and like how why I, I think this is a good like little bait like it's not the biggest draw but it's like one of those things that'll nag you and be like well I could skip this episode of Kiva but also I really want to find out why King was among the humans oh also who who leaked that shit uh, fuck if I know. It's wild that it's a rumor among the Fangire that, yeah, they say that the next king is living among the humans, and also he has magic powers. I don't, you know how rumors are. They spread like wildfire and get exaggerated. Uh, in the hospital, Kingo is storming out of his room out of anger and despair since he has learned that he can no longer play the guitar. Okay, th this is a great scene. Like... I don't know. He just... I, I love pained yells in media. What? The doctor's like, you can you can still live even if you can't play guitar. But Kengo, like, Kengo went all in on guitar. Like, he definitely didn't finish high school. Like, his entire career now is based off of playing guitar. Like, it's literally the only thing he can do. And so he just screams like, ah. And that, I, I, I love this scene. I, I, I love pain screams in the media. I don't know. I thought it was pretty hokey, but that's just me. Outside the hospital, Rook is carrying an old woman for his good deed crap. In Cafe Maldemore, Wataru is sulking over his problems with Mio and out of concern for Kengo. And every, everyone in the cafe, like, this is one of the few times that there are people in the cafe... And they just look at him, and the entire time in the uh, in the confrontation coming up, there's just a lady that there's there's a lady that's just looking back at them and then looks at her date and like, are you seeing this? It's very good. Kengo storms in and lambasts Wataru for keeping the truth of his condition from him and declaring their friendship over. As Wataru kind of goes after Kengo. Kengo just kind of shoves him aside. Keisuke comes up and offers to hear out Wataru's troubles. I feel so bad for uh, Kengo, because, like, like, you know he's not actually mad at Wataru. Like, he's, he's just finding someone, anyone to yell at, because he needs to be mad at someone. And it's just unfortunate that he can't not yell at his best friend. In the Kurenai House's bathroom... Wataru unloads his problems with love and friendship onto Keisuke's willing ears, and that, that sounded more homoerotic than I thought it would. Uh, do you know what else is homoerotic? They're both naked in the bathtub. And, and that little almost touch that Keisuke does. I must find out what he is. Hand reaches towards him. Huh? Oh, nothing. Keisuke walks out and tells Shizuka that Wataru may never leave the bathtub again. Also, this is confirmation... Like, we knew Keisuke was that bitch, but now we know he is that bitch. Like, go, having a shower cap when going into the bath, and then leaves <laughs> in the goddamn... You, you, you know, you know he brought that bathrobe himself. <laughs> Setting up the fan, and just setting himself in front of that fan. Oh uh, yeah, baby. Send that, <laughs> send that cool, cool air right into my tip gap. <laughs> We like to laugh at Keisuke's expense, but I, th I thought this was kind of sweet of him to actually hear another person's troubles and 
take them seriously. Yeah, like now that he's learned about love and consequences through time travel, he's a much better person. Uh, Shiska proceeds to ham it up like no tomorrow as she's overcome with regret from having sabotaged Wataru and Mio's relationship. A spotlight pours down on her. The entire room is cleared out for the scene. All furniture, all Keisuke. And she's like, Mio, go inside. Wataru, go inside. It's so good. What have I done? Forgive me. <laughs> it's amazing. Later, Shiska is dragging Wataru to a venue for a Rakugo comedy. Mio is there too. Shiska apologizes to both of them for her deception, and she graduates from demon to angel. These two episodes are great for just like background acting, because when she says, You two, I'm sorry for the lies I told, Wataru just looks at her, like, sort of leans forward, like, Lies? And then Shisuka just continues talking. Yeah, she. we get a little cut to her being a figurative angel as she does the noble woman's laugh again. And as this is happening, Bishop ominously observes. Hmm. So she's still spending time with that man. Yeah. At a film shoot of some sort where Megami is present, a masked magician called Mr. Redman is performing some sort of trick in which he makes two buildings disappear. Killing thousands. Yeah, or just erasing them from existence. Megami continues to ruminate on how Mitsuhide doesn't understand Yuri's will, and during all of this, Megami is wearing a cap with the words, Famous, I am selected in a goblin coordinate. What the fuck does that mean? It, it's almost as good as Wake Up Reality Gangster. Or no, sorry, not, not, not Wake Up Reality Gangster, Tighten Up Reality Gangster. There's, there, there's an entire Tumblr for bad uh, English in Common Rider. Time's issued in 1986, where Yuri is caught up to Ricky. She bonks him on the head with her knife, and he spills the beans about how Otoya asked him to divert Yuri away from the real Rook. Elsewhere... Otoya is tracking Rook in the sweltering summer heat. Maya runs into him and asks to hear some more of his violin playing. I love this because it's just Maya showing up, being like, hey, remember I still exist? Peace. Yeah. But Otoya spots Rook passing by and runs off in pursuit. Promising, of course, to give her a concert. Otoya then blows an improvised war horn, which I think is just a discarded wine bottle it's so fucking good he summoned he's, he calls for aid he's calling for aid like ricky and ramon and jiro are just like sitting in a bar somewhere and they hear the blowing of a war horn and they just look up and around and say otoya calls for aid and the arms monsters shall, shall answer <laughs> and the fact that ricky is there which means that after after he was like, I'm sorry, I was told to do this. He heard the horn and just ran off, but also remembered to change into a slutty, slutty t-shirt. Yes. It's just slutty, slutty mesh. <laughs> and put on sunglasses, I believe. They are all wearing sunglasses. Yeah, Toya has this goddamn hard eyes. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I love this fucking show. So good. 
they all pop out in preparation for battle with Rook. In 2008, Megami and Red Man's production crew are leaving the shoot only to run into Rook, who offers to help them with whatever troubles they may have, knowing that Rook is dangerous, even if he's trying to do good deeds. Megami puts herself between Rook and the production crew and tries fighting Rook only to get knocked out. By the way, I think Red Man might be a reference to Red Man, which was a tokusatsu production where they had little like five to ten minute episodes of the character Red Man, who said nothing but his name and his attacks, just jumping on like old kaiju suits that they would like rescue from storage. Uh-huh. Is this like an, an adult swim parody sort of thing? Uh, no, basically, I believe it was uh, the people that did Ultraman. I can't remember. Uh, but they they just had they had so many used suits. And it was like, what do we do with them? And some dudes were like, uh, I, can, I can get my camcorder, head out, to the, head out to the woods, and we can just film some fight scenes. And it was just like a hundred some episodes of just of them in... Like, no special effects, really. Just them doing costume fights. Uh, the Warthog Fangire also comes up and kills Mr. Redman, to our eternal despair. In a kind of a Peter Parker moment, Wataru senses the Fangire activity and leaves Mio at the Rakugo performance. Yeah, I, I like that he didn't hesitate. Because he, he knows someone's going to die if he doesn't fight. Like, he... he like. He's grown compared to the time that he had that, you know, that Keisuke fought him as Ixa. Like back then when he got his, when he heard he was just afraid of heading out. Rook, adhering to his role as the Checkmate Force primary enforcer for once, begins fighting the Warthog in order to put down his attempt at usurping King. Keisuke comes onto the scene and not wanting to take too many chances against two powerful Fangires, immediately henshins into rising Ixa, and inserts himself into the fight. Wataru also comes in and goes into Emperor Kiva form. And as Kiva and Ixa fight the Fangires, both of them explicitly laugh their asses off and retreat. Kiva turns back into Wataru within a full view of Keisuke. It's funny, because normally like it would be like, oh no, he accidentally transformed in front of somebody. But Watsu has never cared about his secret identity. Yeah. So, like, it's just, like, it's it's more a shock that he hasn't transformed back in front of somebody. Yeah. Keisuke kind of expresses shock at this, while Bishop ominously looks on, which seems to be his thing. So ends the episode. Also, some pretty good cinematography of that much space and, like, physical barriers between Ixa and uh, Kiva between uh, Wataru and Keisuke, it's, it's really well shot. You know, like a visual metaphor. I'll go ahead and start with my writer of the week. I think I'm giving it to Keisuke. It's not very noticeable, but he seems to be growing a bit. His willingness to lend an ear to Wataru's troubles was a rather nice thing for him to do. In earlier episodes, he probably would have told Wataru to focus less on his own troubles and to better the world instead or some shit like that. I'm pretty sure he's done that exact thing before. Uh, for me, my rider of the week is definitely going to be Shizuka. She, tr- she, she transformed herself into a luminous being. She owned up to her mistakes. 
My monster of the week is the episode preview for ticking for tickling my balls and teasing that Megami and Yuri won't get to use Ixa next time. Uh, for me, my monster of the week is I'm gonna say Bishop for just doing nothing but staring ominously at Wataru. <laughs> yeah. Uh, to the tarot corner. I think I'm giving an upright temperance to both Shizuka and Keisuke. In Astrology.com's words, temperance symbolizes moderation, patience, harmony, and good influence. It can also be a warning to temper your behavior and a reminder that irreconcilable opposites can be reconciled. That, that, that doesn't sound true. Like, if they're ir- irreconcilable, how can you reconcile them? It's, it's, in the, it's in the name, Adam. Don't think too hard about it. I will think as hard as I want about it. I'm the one that has the knife. Don't give yourself an aneurysm. Uh, I think that correlates pretty well to how Shizuka and Keisuke got around their character flaws in this episode. Shizuka got over her jealousy, and Keisuke kind of got a, a little, like, one leg over his self-righteous rigidity. Yeah, also, like, at this point, he is, like, 80 before, obviously, seeing him as Kiva, he's 80% sure that Wataru's a fangire. Because he saw his mom, his mom was a fangire. And instead of, like, being dogmatic about it, he's like, this is my friend Wataru, I just need to figure things out. And my episode rating is 6 out of 10. This one was not quite as good as the last one, but it was still pretty good. As for how I think the Warthog could have been better written, I don't think his MO was very well thought out. The thing with him believing with King was a magician or psychic was kind of dumb, as you've noted. I think a better way to write it would have been so that he was seeking out humans with psychic or supernatural abilities to eat so he could, like, absorb their power in an attempt to become strong enough to kill and replace King. I think that would have been a better motivation instead of just going out around and killing random street performers. Well, I, I think I think him trying to kill, find the king's human guys is important because that means we know that the king was raised among the humans. Because like we, we knew Taiga like you know was friends with Wataru when he was little, but we don't know the situation about that. It could have just been a fangire couple just wanting to show their chill, show their child the uh, you know the cattle. I, I don't mind it if, if if it was just a little bit smarter or if it was like. Like, if instead of psychic abilities, it was, like, he was going after, like, athletes or, like, people, or, like, people who, like, score really high on, like, tests or something, it could have been, like, well, like, you, you know, how they have, like, you know, national rate rankings for, like, high schoolers or some shit or college students in Japan. It could have been, like, I know that, <clears throat> hold up, he's a cowboy. I know for sure, partner, that the king was raised among humans. And the king being a fang guy will definitely be leagues above any of those human cattle. Therefore, partner, that means the king must be a prime specimen of human. That's why I'm heading after all these smart and tough fellas, you know? God, now I'm super self-conscious of my accent. You have no accent. I'm Texan. I have a southern drawl. I can't help it. You don't have a southern drawl, mate. I do, though. It's, it's kind of mild, but it's there. Anyway, what's your episode rating? Uh, I'm going to give it a 8.5 out of 10. All right. Like, I, I just think it was good. I, I really enjoy this episode. I love Red Man. I, I love, I love Keisuke seeing Wataru, 
like the henshin and i think i think this and the fact that it's the second part of a three-parter that like it was a surprise even to me watching i was like wait hold up it's not ending here and that brings us to the end of the episode as always folks you can find us on twitter at double underscore common you can also find me at pokemon primeval it's an actual play rpg podcast i do and and sort of different hypothetical versions of the pokemon world anna is there anything you'd like to plug uh i wouldn't like to plug anything but i will say you can find me if you put together all the clues yeah this again has anyone made any progress yes I know that 50 people across the globe has followed, have followed enough clues to reach the first checkpoint. Okay. Now, those of you there, you put together the seven key cards you won, and that'll form a map. Place that map in the, in the, on top of one of the pyramids in the Louvre, and that'll show you the next clue. Alrighty, Carmen San Diego. I... Good luck, detectives. Uh-huh. I guess we can go ahead and hint Sheen out of here. Head. Sheen.